We are in week four of our Bless Up series. Um, this has been a great series. If you haven't uh, seen them all, you can go to our YouTube, subscribe. You can watch there. Uh, there's a bunch of people actually right now watching on YouTube, so welcome. Thank you for joining us. Uh, also, Albion Monroe, we are so glad that you're a part of our community. Thank you for being with us. Uh, such a cool thing that we get to do, uh, church together with, with all of you. So thank you for being here. Uh, today, uh, we're going to start by talking about uh, irrational fears. Um, and if you know me for any length of time, um, you know that I'm loaded with them. Like I just, It's just kind of how I'm wired. Um, if fight or flight kicks in, I just run every time. It's kind of just how I operate. Because I just feel like if, you're, like if you fight, there's a chance you lose. Um, but if you run, not going to catch me, so I'm out. So I just, I just go. I, like, it, it just is what it is. So I told last service that there was one kid in high school who wanted to fight me, and I just quit school. I, just, I skipped school for like a week and just stopped going. I, was, I told my parents I was sick. I go to the nurse right before lunchtime. I was like, I'm not going to get beat up. Like, this is a ridiculous scenario. And now we're friends. So uh, if someone wants to fight you when you're in high school, just skip school. <laughs> it's, you'll make it. I'm just kidding. Uh, anyway, um, basically one of the big ones for me, one of my irrational, we've all got them. Some of you are scared of heights and roller coasters, which is completely irrational or so safe. Um, some of us are scared of flying, and you have a better chance of actually getting injured on the way to the airport than in the airplane. So, like, a fear of flying, it, it's, it's a fear. I'm not diminishing it, but it's irrational, okay? Just saying. Um, one of mine growing up was, um, this is going to sound stupid, but it's irrational. And this is a safe place. We're friends. Uh, I, there was, the, like, garbage night was, like, a big thing. I hate garbage night. It's just such a stupid concept. Like, why do they have to come at the crack of dawn? Uh, they could come in the midday, and then I could bring the garbage out when it's daylight. Um, but there was always this walk for me growing up uh, when I would have to take the garbage out. And then the walk out was never that bad because you like, had the tote and you could make a lot of noise. So the thing that was going to kill you wasn't going to kill you because I was scared of the noise. And then, but the moment you drop the garbage can off at the curb and you have to run back, uh, that was the worst moment, I think, of my childhood was that run. And like, I would run like a 4 4 40 uh, if you clocked me, because there's something about it. it was horrifying. I hated it. I was truly thought, I'm going to die on this walk. And it was just this thing. And so, like, it still lingers, if I'm being honest. So, like, every week I have to take the garbage out at my house because my son's not old enough yet. Um, and so, and it's like I never walk back to the house. Like, I never do. It's like, I book, I lay, it's high tail. And so, it's irrational. And I'm cool with it, okay? I'm very comfortable in my own skin. I don't mind. Uh, the other day, uh, my wife and I got back. I think we were on a date, and it was garbage night. So I go to grab the tote because I'm a good husband, and uh, she wants to go with me to take the garbage down. I'm like, cool. Like, now we got a team. And so um, we go down, and, like, she kind of knows about this thing about me. But, and then you've got to act like you're not scared when you're with your wife. So I, but I, I can't help it. So I start walking faster, because I'm not going to die first. And so, <laughs> and so I'm walking faster, and then, like, I just hear behind me, like, a whipping sound, and, like, I freak, and I hear something running up behind me, and I was like, what is this? And it's just her, you know? She's just having fun, enjoying the walk, like, whipping her uh, sweatshirt uh, sleeves, and I yelled at her. It was a great moment. It ended the night great. It was a great end to our date night. Um, but it's irrational, and we all have irrational fears. Uh, I'm not alone in our rational fears. Uh, there's actually never been a generation that has lived fear-free. 
There's never been one. There's never been a group of people who has lived with the absence of fear. There is a reality that fear exists, and it, it's actually here to stay. So fear, the anxiety that you get when you're scared, like when you get bad news and you get scared, like that reality is going nowhere. And the issue with fear is one, fear is the enemy of faith. What's really interesting about fear and faith, though, is they kind of run parallel roads. They actually run in the same direction because you can't have fear. If, like, there's no, if you're certain about everything in a situation, you're not going to be scared of it. Like, fear lives in uncertainty. And it's actually very easy to have faith when everything is certain. When you know exactly how something's going to end up, you don't need faith for that. You just live your life. Faith actually needs uncertainty as well. They both live in the same world, but fear is the enemy of faith. Because what fear does is it actually causes you to not want to go places. Fear stops you from having experiences. Fear will cripple your joy, and fear can ruin relationships. That is just how fear operates. And so we're going to have a, a bit of a conversation today uh, kind of about how fear hinders uh, our lives. And we're going to focus a little bit on giving. And to frame it, this is what Paul wrote to the church in Corinthians. Now, the Corinthian church was crazy. They needed two letters from Paul to get their lives right. And uh, in his second letter to them, he kind of wraps up one of his points. He says, the point is this, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Uh, it's basically like he was on Reddit, and he's like, if this was too long and you didn't read, like, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he, decided, as, he, as he has decided in his own heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. That, if you just read that and like you go about your day, that can be such an annoying verse. Like God loves a cheerful giver. It's like, well, don't you understand what I'm going through? Like, I'm not cheerful right now, like, but God loves a cheerful giver. I read this story about a guy named Jeremiah uh, Clary. Now, I cannot tell you if this story is fact or fiction. I'm not a huge fiction story guy, so I'm just choosing to believe that Jeremiah Clary is a real dude. He was a farmer in the late 20s, early 30s, in like that Oklahoma panhandle, which I didn't even know people lived there, but they do. That little spot, I thought that was just barren wasteland, but there's farmers there. It's amazing. So if you are from Oklahoma... Good no. And so uh, he was planting his crops during the Dust Bowl. And what happened during the Dust Bowl is hundreds of thousands of acres of, of crops and land were destroyed from the dust storms. And it just kept happening. And so uh, Jeremiah was the type of guy who got down to basically his last, I don't think they, they, I don't think they planted with these, but let's just say they did. Uh, he was down to like his last bushel of seeds. Okay, and the time frame where he could actually plant his seed to harvest them later was closing. Like it was, the clock was ticking. And now he had a decision to make. Was he going to plant the seed or was he just going to save the seed? And it's a really ironic thing because if he just like holds on to his final few bags of seed, like obviously he's not going to have anything to harvest anyway. It's like the illogical nature of what fear does to people is he, he was arguing with himself, should I just hold on to it 
and it's useless, or do I plant it and potentially it gets ruined again? The problem is if he just holds on to it, it's ruined anyway. It doesn't matter anyway. And there's something about us as humans where when things get difficult or uncertain, our default is just to hold on to the remaining seed for fear that we might lose it. But seeds only produce fruit when they're planted. You realize that the, the finances that we have, no matter how much or how little, until they are sown, what the Bible would call sown sparingly, reap sparingly, sown generously, reap generously. Until the finances that we have are sown, nothing can happen with them if we just hoard it. This is the tough place where maybe we have found ourselves. And it might seem illogical, but we're actually in kind of like our own dust bowl, if you will. I don't know the last time that butter cost so much. Like, it's like unbelievable. It's like, I just want a stick. Just, just one stick of butter. Make my own butter. Like, I'm just going to start making my own. Like, uh, inflation is through the roof. Gas prices are crazy. Interest rates are skyrocketing. You wake up every morning with a sense of uncertainty. This, like, you, we actually have no idea what will happen next. So we're faced with a generosity conundrum. Because there's two ways that people work. Either we don't give because we see ourselves as lacking. So I ask, I'll give when I, get, when I have more. When I'm financially stable, then I'll start giving. Or we've, we've, uh, we've framed our lives in such a way where we've got it all meticulously planned out. So we know exactly right off the top, I'm going to start giving. It's all worked out. And like, it's great. Like we've got this system down. So hoarding in the face of uncertainty can actually block the provision of God in your life. If when things are uncertain, we just hold on, it will actually block the provision of God in your life. Now, giving off the top is a great start, but maybe there's something deeper beneath the surface that God wants to teach us. Now, this is not a call to just unwise living. I'm not going to talk to you today about just throwing off all the things that entangle you and be just unwise with finances. But we are going to talk about sacrificing everything for the one who provided everything for you. Because until we grasp the spiritual reality that we serve a God who truly provides for every need, we'll always live in a way that hoards before it sows. So the whole point of this series is to create a direct contrast between what our culture says about money and what follower of Jesus, followers of Jesus should actually do with their finances. So again, this is one of your first times here, and you're like, I'm just checking out a Christian church. I don't believe half of the things that these people say. Then, like, you can just sit back and relax and enjoy. But if you are a follower of Jesus, this is going to get tough, but it's going to be great. Okay? We're all good. Awesome. All right. Um, <laughs> um, so, okay, the reality is that maybe giving has less to do with the money-changing hands and has far more to do with the person that's giving it. It's a classic move by God, to be honest with you, to create the practice of giving. It's a similar, like, if, like, the practice, it actually works out stuff that's gripping your soul. That's the whole point of spiritual practices. Like, for example, if you're just praying to hear yourself talk, like, there's, there's better things you could probably do with your time. Like, when you're, when you're fasting, if you're just fasting to say that you gave up a meal, like, eat it's not worth the practice if you're not allowing God to work out the things in your soul. 
You see, giving has far less to do with just the finances leaving your pocket. It actually has everything to do with who God is making you become through the act of giving. Each and every one of us have some level of anxiety and fear that is gripping our souls, and a lot of times it focuses on finance. And until we practice the spiritual practice of generosity, that grip will always be there. This is going to be a countercultural conversation. It's going to be uncomfortable at times, but I promise you that gospel-centered generosity is an all-in endeavor. Gospel-centered generosity is an all-in endeavor. And it did not just start in westernized culture. Giving did not start there. In fact, when Jesus started his public ministry, this is unbelievable, the backdrop of his public ministry, the temple at the time was so dysfunctionally toxic, you didn't know where politics started and the church started. It was so far blended because different uh, aspects of the religious group at the time, they realized we can get political leverage if we just utilize our church. We can just leverage our religious power and our religious elitism to get stuff from the, the government. So when you would go to the temple, there was an outer court where uh, the Gentiles are called the Gentile court. And then also part of the outer court was the court of women because women were oppressed in this first century society. They had very little say in anything. This is the outer court. It wasn't exclusively for women, but it's as far as women could go in the temple. Okay, then you had the inner court. That's where all the uh, male Israelites would go. They'd offer sacrifices and they pray. And then you have the Holy of Holies. That's like the priests would go in there. This is how the temple was set up. Well, now in the outer courts is where all the commotion would happen because this is where the temple treasury was. And the temple treasury was literally, they called them uh, trumpets. There was 13 giving trumpets. The reason they called them trumpets is because they were shaped like trumpets. They were very narrow at the top. They were wide at the bottom. People would drop their money in one of these 13 trumpets, and you would hear the money hit. It was basically a show because the really rich people would come in, and they would just sit there, and it's dropping in. It's like a game. It's awesome. It was like uh, slot machines before slot machines. It was like unbelievable. And so this would happen. And there was uh, trumpets for, like, if you wanted to make penance for sin and you wanted to help pay for sacrifices in the temple, there was a trumpet for that. If you wanted to help pay for funding the wood for the sacrifices, there was a trumpet for that, where they literally raised money to purchase the wood for the sacrifices. There was also a temple tax. Imagine that. This is a mandatory thing. You have to go and put the money in the temple tax trumpet. So all this stuff is happening. There's so much happening around finances in the Jewish church at the time that Jesus started his ministry. And then there was all of these laws that the religious elite would force you to follow if you wanted to be on the inside. If you wanted to be a follower of the religion at the time, there was hundreds of rules you had to follow. So it's rules and money. Okay, this is the backdrop that Jesus finds himself during the start of his ministry. Okay, so one day, Jesus is with his disciples, and this rich the scripture calls him a rich young ruler. Now, a couple of the, if you read all of three of the gospels that he's in, some, all of them call him young. One of them calls a ruler. He's a man. Okay, he's just a rich kid. All right. He's got it made. He's got it together. He comes up to Jesus and sparks up this conversation. And this is how it goes. We're going to talk about this. We're going to pick three things that happen here. We're going to talk about it. And then we're going to end by talking about another story of someone who gave in scripture. And then we're going to be done. So this is what it says in Matthew chapter 19. Verses 16 to 22. 
It says this, And behold, a man came up to him, him being Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now, right off the bat, he's asking the wrong question because there is nothing he can do to inherit eternal life. There's literally nothing you can do in your own power to make amends with sin. It's just, there's nothing you can do. But Jesus, he flirts with the conversation anyway. So he said to him, why do you ask me what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And the kid says, well, which ones? And Jesus says, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you should love your neighbor as yourself. The young man's feeling good. He says to him, all these I've kept. What do I still lack? This is where the conversation turns. Jesus says to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, this is not an anti-wealth message. That would actually fly in the face of much of Scripture because it would negate some of the spiritual heroes that we have. Uh, Abraham was extremely wealthy. Moses came from an extremely wealthy background. Joshua, wealthy. Joseph, wealthy. Solomon, super wealthy. David, crazy amounts of wealth. Daniel, wealthy. All these men and many more had vast amounts of wealth in Scripture, and they were heroes in the faith. So this is not going to be a thing against wealth. What this is is not an anti-wealth message. It's an anti-polytheistic message. It is wrong to worship many gods. Simply put, this is not that difficult. And if we are not careful, we will succumb to the God of finance every time. The God of finance is actually stronger than we think. And in this story, we have three lifestyles that are anti-gospel that I want to talk to us about today. The first one is the lifestyle of convenience. Now, I am setting up at my own house, I'm, I'm trying to make as best I can everything in my house to be operated on my phone, okay? Even my kids. If I could just operate them on my phone, we would just be, be awesome. I'm just kidding. Um, but lights, forget about it. I, I will not touch a light switch anymore. It is 2022. I'm done with those things. They're antiquated and they're annoying. I'll just hit the button on my phone and my lights go on. It's super convenient. I love it. My washing machine, it tells me when it's done. It's great. I'm like working it out. Hue bulbs are way too expensive, but we're making it happen, okay? Uh, I want everything to be as comfortable and as convenient in my home as possible. The issue is, when you set up your life so conveniently, when it's no longer convenient, it frustrates everyone. So if my in-laws come over, they don't have the stuff on their phones, so they can't turn my lights on and off. It's like this whole thing. So if we're not home and they're watching the kids, they sit in the dark, and it's just like, and it's, or they'll like turn the switches off that you're not supposed to turn off, and it just ruins my whole system, and then I get super aggravated. It's like, it's, everything's convenient until it's not, and all of a sudden it's like super inconvenient. The lifestyle of convenience will actually destroy your life, okay? I'm not talking about smart homes, but like, look at this. So in the Jewish culture at the time, uh, being wealthy didn't equal eternal life, but great wealth was seen as great blessings from God. So Jesus and this young man have an entire conversation about convenient things. Like when Jesus goes through the commandments, because he says, keep the commandments, he doesn't start at one. He actually skips to like halfway through. He says, don't murder. Well, that's convenient. 
Easy. I'll check that one right off the list. I'm not going to kill anybody. He says, don't commit adultery. We don't even know if this guy's married. This guy's that easy. Don't steal, obviously. Honor your father and mother. Maybe he paused a little bit, but he's like, they're good, you know? Like, love your neighbor as yourself. Everyone loves the love your neighbor as yourself because no one wants to admit they don't love their neighbor or that they don't love themselves. That's an easy one. If you smile at someone today, you're like, I'm loving my neighbor as myself. It's like we've, we've dumbed that one down so much that everybody, so it's, Jesus gave him all of the convenient things. And then the, the guy asks, all of these I kept, what do I lack? What still do I lack? We need to be careful that we do not fall into the convenience trap where we cherry pick all the things we love about righteousness, all the things we love about living a godly life, and we put it on our middle shelf so it's easy to see. I got all this stuff on lock. I'm at prayer at least two times a month, like crushing it. I'm at church a couple times a month. I used to be three, but then COVID hit. Now it's like, Two is good. You guys will live, okay? But it's there. You know, I'm not cheating on my spouse. I don't lie at work. Like, all those things. Like, the, the low-hanging fruit, we look super good. But what about the stuff that you put on the bottom shelf? And this is where the conversation will actually start to turn with this guy. Because when we actually think there's something that we can do to earn the favor of God, I feel like we've already lost. Our job is just to respond to what Jesus did. Our job is to respond for the fact that he gave up everything for us. You see, the hard truth is that Christianity does not exist for our convenience. This is not, this is not a religion based on comfort. We've tried to make it more comfortable by saying, like, this isn't a religion, this is a relationship. It's a relationship. That's great. But this relationship actually calls for deep sacrifice. Not just deep sacrifice, sacrificing everything for the one who gave up everything for you. This, does, this is not about our convenience. It's a religion based on sacrificial love, and it falls flat in the world of convenience. And if you live a lifestyle of convenience, generosity is always going to be at the mercy of your comfort level. It just will be. The moment things get inconvenient, it's super easy. Just be like, yeah, no, we're going to put the pause pump the brakes on that. Your generosity will always take a backseat to your comfort level. We cannot find ourselves in a lifestyle of convenience. And then Jesus tells the man to sell. So Jesus, he turns, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. What he's essentially saying is live a generous life out of everything you have. Now, what's crazy about this part is that Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. I don't think that's one of the Ten Commandments. But if you remember earlier in the Gospels, they asked Jesus to test him. What's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second, Jesus says, just like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is a genius. He skips the important part of the commandment and goes straight to the convenient part. Love your neighbor as yourself. And for Jesus to roundaboutly ask him if he loves the Lord his God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, he tells him, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. In Scripture, there is no one else who comes to Jesus with a need or a question and leaves disappointed other than this guy. When Jesus tells him, okay, you say you love your neighbor, why don't you sell everything you have? It ends the conversation. There's no follow-up. There's no extra question. There's no qualifier. 
He just leaves, depressed. You see, the lifestyle of idolatry is closer than you think. You realize that like, idolatry is the idea that anything that comes before God in your life, if you are a follower of Jesus, idolatry is having anything in your life that comes before God. This is why it's closer than we'd care to admit. Because I think if we started to really think about our lives, even now, you're probably starting to get some cold sweats. You're like, yeah, there's probably one or two things. Like even my children. And this is why the hard parts of Scripture are sometimes hard to read. Because Jesus would say wild things. He literally, we would have to preach a whole message on it, so I hesitate to even say it. But he literally says, unless you hate your father or mother, you have no part in me. Jesus was obsessed with being the most important thing in people's lives. Nothing that comes, but anything that comes between my relationship with God is an idol. And like it's, we can, like, we're all in it. So this is, we're, this is okay. We can talk about it. We need to fix some things in our lives. But money produces idolatry so easily because in the midst of uncertainty, it's so easy to hold back finances for the sake of safety. And God is actually calling his followers to live a lifestyle that is willing to give up everything in response to his mercy. Hoarding is not the answer. It's a heart that is willing to give it all away, trusting that God is faithful. That is the lifestyle of a Jesus follower. In fact, in Romans, it literally says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. It says this is your reasonable act of service. It's wild, wild times. It's the choice to live a radically generous life. And the third one is a lifestyle of fear. Now, like I said earlier, fear and faith, they run parallel lives because they both, they grow in uncertainty. Either faith or fear is going to grow in uncertainty. And again, there's, if there's one predictable thing in this life, it's that life will be unpredictable. Like, if there's one thing that is 100% certain is that life will be uncertain. That is the only thing that we can kind of hang our hat on to be true, is that it is unpredictable living on this planet, okay? And so fear, this is the things that fear produces. Because I actually think that this, this rich young guy had a ton of fear in his life. Because here's what, fear produces comparison. It's this idea that someone's always going to have more than you. And so we'll say things to ourselves, ourselves like, well, if I, if I had their money, if I had their life, and we watch and we compare ourselves to other people and we base our faith on other people's successes. We base the quality of what we can offer the kingdom of God based on other people's successes. Fear will always produce comparison, but it should not dictate your generosity. Fear will always produce apathy. It'll cause you to settle into complaining and victimhood. Saying things like, well, it just never works out for me anyway. That's just my lot in life. This is just how, this is just this is who I am. This is what God has done to me. Fear will always produce apathy. And fear produces a stingy life. Because fear forces hoarding. The moment fear gets in, you may think to yourself for a second, I should be generous, but it's screaming at you to hold back your generosity. But it's amazing what happens when you actually put your faith in front of your fear. Because you can't reason your way through uncertain times. You just can't. 
you can try, but there are some things that you can control. And I think this is what's so wild. I preached a couple weeks ago, and I talked about how this study was done, and individuals, they did a study on individuals making $250,000 a year, okay? $250,000 a year. Sounds amazing, right? And so a third of them, we think it sounds amazing, a third of them answered on this study that they live paycheck to paycheck, okay? It's clearly not about how much I have. Everybody is dealing with the same level of anxiety. And sometimes, all you can do is control what you can control. So maybe, in the midst of, maybe you're living in anxiety right now. Ask yourself the question, when is the last time I've sat down with my spouse and we've just had an honest conversation about finances? When's the last time we've sat down and actually dictated together where our finances are going to go? When's the last time we've, we've put pen to paper and budgeted our money? Because you realize that money does not have a mind of its own. Like it's going somewhere. So don't blame the devil for like our lack of planning. You know what I mean? It's so easy to be like, well, the devil's attacking me. It's like, well, you don't plan. So your lack of planning is attacking you. Like it's amazing the freedom you will find when you start to plan your finances. It's actually incredible. You sit down with a pen and paper and you tell your money where to go. It's awesome. You can Google Dave Ramsey and he helps. Like it's an incredible thing. There is so much fear and uncertainty that can be broken when you actually plan. So again, don't blame the enemy of your soul for a lack of proper planning. Do the things you can control and then we can deal with the uncertain future because fear is definitely here to stay. The question is, what priority do you put your fear in? Like, we all prioritize our fear. You just do because it's always there. There's stuff you're scared of. Like, I told last year, my wife is, like, deathly afraid of snakes. So if we go to the zoo, we don't go to the reptiles, okay? You want to see an alligator, but we don't. We're prioritizing our fears, okay? And we all do it. You set yourself up, your life up in a way where your fears are prioritized. The question is, what priority do you put fear like, are you more scared of not having enough savings or going through the same scenario without a heavenly father who can provide for your every need? Like, what one are you more afraid of? We need to prioritize our fear because I would rather go through that scenario with a heavenly father that provides than just freaking out about finances. Park, you can start playing the piano. All right, gospel-centered generosity is an all-in endeavor. So what do we do from here? Because it's a radical call to actually live a generous life. It's living under the reality that we do serve a good God, a God who's a provider. He's the reason that we have everything, and he's a God who loves a cheerful giver. It's easy to be cheerful when things are certain. Like when It's easy. But when things are hard, it's a little more difficult to be cheerful. That's why I don't think when Paul wrote, God loves a cheerful giver, I don't think he was saying he likes uh, a fake slapped smile on your face and being like, Haha, I'm so glad we're here. No, a cheerful giver is someone who says, despite what's going on around me, I'm trusting God with everything that I have. Despite what is happening around me, despite what's happening in my family, I'm going to trust God with everything that I have. It's not always easy to be cheerful, and our modern-day culture may fool us into thinking that we should create the most comfortable life possible. But God actually calls us to radical generosity only because it's in response to his radical generosity towards us. It's a generosity that looks illogical to the culture 
around us. This is why I said we're going to talk about two people. This is like the tale of two givers. Because in Luke 21, 1 through 4, you get a story of Jesus witnessing another scenario. So Jesus looks up, and he saw the rich putting their gifts into those offering boxes that I told you about earlier. Then he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow was, has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. This story is actually rather uncomfortable. Like I told you about the temple courts and the commotion and the, the temple treasury was actually in the court of women. And uh, I don't think it was very normal for women to come and put their gifts in those offering trumpets. It's usually a man's job at, at this time. So the fact that she was even there is wild. The fact that she's there, she's a widow, it says, or her husband probably recently died. And for her, I bet when she thought about her day when she woke up that morning, she was thinking, I'm just going to sneak in. I'm going to do what I got to do. I'm going to sneak out. And remember the show, there's people just standing there, just dropping their money in, looking good, high-fiving the boys, having the time of their lives. But Jesus notices this woman, and she probably didn't know that a couple thousand years later, people would still be talking about her. She probably wanted to come in and leave and go home. But Jesus saw something. He saw the spirit of a fully generous person. See, if fear produces comparison, you would think that this woman would have gotten up that morning. I mean, like, it's not even worth it. I'm a, I'm a female in an oppressive culture. I'm just going to give up. I'm not going to that temple anymore. I'm going to pick new friends. They're all going to be looking at me. I look weird. I don't have a husband, so now I'm really a nobody. I'm nothing to these people. But if fear produces comparison face uh, in the face of uncertainty, faith produces resolve. So clearly she got up that morning. She's like, I'm just going to do this thing. Fear produces apathy in the face of uncertainty. But maybe this woman had a confidence that she knew who God was. And she was confident that he was going to do what he said he would do. So she shows up. If fear produces a stingy lifestyle, then I think faith actually produces illogical and unreasonable generosity. And again, our modern day comfort will tell us that giving out of everything is unwise, yet the Spirit of God is forever beckoning the followers of Jesus to give out of everything that they have. That's why Jesus says, and there's not even anything wrong with what the rich people are doing. But he's saying they give out of every, they give out of their abundance. He's like, but this woman, she's giving out of everything that she has. You realize that the resource that you currently have in your hand, God has graced you with that resource. No matter how much, no matter how little. And the call is the same. Whether you make it all or whether you make barely anything, the call is to live a generous life, giving out of everything that we have. That is our part to play. So may we be a church that does not allow the reality of fear to hold us back from living a generous life. But may we look more like the widow and less like the rich young man who says, God, I know that you are a providing God. I know that you own a cattle on a thousand hills. It's not like God's up there in heaven wondering, oh, how are we going to make it? 
Like, what are we going to do? I'm freaked out about money. No, God owns everything. He doesn't actually need your money. What he actually needs is he needs a healthy soul. That's what he wants. He wants a soul that is willing to give up everything to follow him. It's not about the money. It's about the state of our souls. So what is the thing that is gripping your soul right now? Maybe it's idolatry. Maybe you've fallen into a life of convenience and you've just thought, I don't really have a part to play here. Maybe comparison is killing your will to live. I want to tell you that there is a better way. There's a generous lifestyle where God actually wants you to live life and life to the fullest, where he's actually the door. He is the gate to a great life. He actually says, like Jesus literally says, if I've provided for the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, how much more will I provide for you? So maybe you're here today and you are in deep want. I'm going to say something that's illogical. A generous life is what God is calling you to do. Earthly wisdom would say it's crazy, but heavenly wisdom, you watch the miracles that happen. God is calling us to live generous. He's calling us to give up everything and follow him. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you are a God who provides for each and every one of our needs. God, we thank you that you are good, that you are a good father. So God, I pray that you would cause us to want to live radically generous lives, that you would do the soul work, patch the things that need to be patched, heal the broken areas of our souls. God, help us to live lives with open hands, not clenched fists. That the resources you've given us, no matter how much or how little, God, we ask that you would use it to do what only you can do, that your kingdom would come to earth. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.